0: I say let the world have it. Let them know.
1: Welcome to the inaugural episode for Season 2 of Beringia. As we explored in our Noel episode, this season marks the start of what can be thought of as Beringia 2.0, focusing on real stories and often overlooked perspectives. A Latin phrase comes to mind. Dokendo discimos, meaning by teaching, we learn, and I suppose there's no better learning opportunity than to explore education itself. In a city of more than 8.4 million, there are countless organizations and individuals that are dedicated to ensuring the complexities of life are managed. Arguably one of the most important tasks, education, is responsible for ensuring that there will be new and engaged citizens ready to take up the mantle of managing the city, What does education in a place as complex and diverse as New York City look like? What issues emerge, and how are they remedied? And what does the intersection of social justice and education mean for those with the task of educating the youth of today? Mac Ellis explored this and more in an interview with Dr. Jason Hendrickson of LaGuardia Community College during a recent trip to New York.
0: I'm here with Dr. Hendrickson from LaGuardia Community College. And today we will be talking about the education system in New York City.
2: Yes, my name is Jason Hendrickson and I am a professor of English at LaGuardia Community College, part of the City University of New York, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. I am a first-generation college graduate. I also, was born in, I'm born and raised from New York, proud product of Queens, New York, lived in Brooklyn, lived in Harlem, and I know the city quite well. Yeah.
0: That's what's up, that's what's up. So first off, just would you like to explain your personal experiences with New York's system, school (laughs) system, whether it's elementary, middle, (laughs) high, even all the way up to where you are now?
2: Yeah, so I am one of the many 1.1 million students here are served in the public education system, which is the largest in the country. And my experience is kind of odd that I did go to public school through 12th grade, but at Let's see, in fourth grade, I was plucked out through a gifted and talented program. Still part of the public school system, but I went through the kind of everyday public school system until I tested into a special program, which kind of fast-tracked me in some ways through the, I'd say the trap doors that a lot of folks suffer from. But yeah, after fourth grade, went through a special program that channeled me into a specialized high school, which at the time there were three. And those were schools that were basically the public school equivalent of what boarding schools or private schools do that funnel kids into particular colleges. And that was, again, through more testing that I got into those schools. Mm -hmm. And from there, I left New York to go to Duke University for my undergrad. Mm -hmm. And from there, went to go for my doctorate Mm -hmm. at umass amherst so i've spent time with public i've spent time with public specialized or gifted talented Mm. and i've spent time with private in college i've gotten to see a little bit of it all Yeah.
0: do you think that you would have gone on to go to duke which is pretty much an ivy you know one of the top schools in the country. The Ivy of the South. <laughs> yes, it. pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Uh, which <laughs> do you think you would have gotten into Duke if you hadn't been plucked out and moved into an accelerated program or hmm. gifted program? That's a
2: great question. It would be very unlikely. And even now, because of the changes in higher education for the past, you know, I'd say over the past two decades, even going to these schools, whether they are specialized public or private, a lot of folks don't realize how much of for lack of a better word, a crapshoot, it is for you to go through even the most elite of channels mm. and expect to get into those types of schools anymore. The numbers just show that the amount of seats that are in these institutions have remained static for the mm. most part. And so you have more people vying for fewer spots and they are intentionally left small to be competitive. Right. And so it's an open question, but I would say, I, even if I went through the channels, I'd say, that would be unlikely but if i were not taken taken from my public school experience that i had mm. and gone through those gifted and talented programs no i do not see how i would have gotten into, the, into those
0: schools mm. do you think new york schools in particular well i guess new york public schools are different than other public schools around like how exactly because i know there's sometimes a lottery there's how would you Describe it to someone who doesn't know the New York City <laughs> public school system.
2: Well, I've had the fortune of traveling, seeing different places in the country. And so I think I think back to the, even in something small like the idea of homecoming. Mm. In some places, homecoming for going back to high school is a big thing. Like your town or your, your, your city's high school football games. Right. Down south, of course, that's huge. Mm. Here we have 1,800 schools. We have eighteen hundred public schools, oh my um, serving one point one million students. Right, so I went to high school, for example, on a block that had another high school, and both of us had thousands of students. And so you spread that out over mm-hmm. the city. So the idea of like the idea of having this pride that we associate with something like homecoming you know, it, it just is different, right? You have so many different institutions. And in the last decades, the system has been like other urban systems. It's been influenced by charter schools, independent schools, and it's just one big project. Um, New York in and of itself is a huge project. Our college and community college and four-year institution system is the nation's largest experiment. It describes itself as such. Even the City University of New York serves a quarter million students. So think of a college that's huge. You think of a university that's huge. You're thinking maybe 20,000. I think Duke's enrollment was about 12,000 or so at the time, undergrad and grad. Wow. CUNY enrolls 225,000 students, right? So two hundred
0: twenty-five thousand is crazy right. so
2: you have dozens of campuses and it is special in that way because it's a huge system mm-hmm. the k-12 system is a huge system and it has quirks right so if and this has evolved over the years but mm-hmm. finding a good education is is a is a task unto itself that mm-hmm. you have literally thousands upon thousands of people parents children going through. And it could be very, uh, very, very confusing and sometimes disheartening.
0: Mm. So would you say overcrowding caused a major issue in New York in terms of school, not even just as the city, but just overcrowding in general? Um,
2: I would, overcrowding, I guess I'd have to go back to the history of what education in the city is and, and was. New York is kind of unique, as I'd say would be some of the other places in the Northeast. The philosophy of education in New York in the mid-1800s was pretty progressive. It sought to educate the entire population. Education, especially higher education, was not meant for everyone. That is a very new phenomenon in the grand scheme of things. And so the idea that a city would intentionally try to educate the masses of people was pretty radical. Mm. And it was met with controversy, but in the mid-1800s, Townsend Harris, who has a high school named after him here, which is a very good school, um, (laughs) Townsend Harris proposed the idea of a free college. And that's the legacy that carried into the 20th century with CUNY or the City University of New York. Mm. Uh, CUNY was free through the 1970s until New York hit a uh, pretty bad economic turn. But it still is, it still is the most affordable option. And also is the, it's pretty, yeah, it's still a pretty radical idea. But to your question, the conditions, of course, New York is crowded. If Mm. anyone visits it, you know that it's kind of like living here is paying for basically an adult, adult adult-sized dorm room. Um, (laughs) But, but... uh, I think it's a bit more complex than overcrowding because of, yeah, there's just the urban nature of it. Other school systems across the country have their own issues, but the sheer volume that creates the bureaucracy is part of it. The demography and who is educated plays a part of it. One out of every six students in the K through 12 system is in poverty. Mm. And so just generally the, amount of just the, the the conditions that make new york unique the racial demography the segregation between private institutions here and then the public institutions here they all play a role in making this a story that doesn't find much that 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 stands alone yet has some parallels to say chicago or los angeles mm-hmm. but those are still just anomalies compared to education in the country writ large
0: yeah if yes, i personally didn't really think about i mean i Went to public schools Mm -hmm. pretty all of my life, mostly. Mm -hmm. And all of my public schools were all just really good-funded public schools. And I also grew up in, like, the South. And I even lived in Alaska for five years. And so, like, I was in those rural, like, not inner-city kinds of schooling. And the only time I did was do inner-city. I went to Xavier University of Louisiana for a year. And even then, that was a smaller school because it was a Catholic school. So it was only, like, Mm -hmm. I think my class was the largest class they had in like years Mm -hmm. and they're only like max 5,000 of us Mm. and so hearing schools here having hundreds of thousands is just so mind-boggling to Mm. me and just sounds so crowded and I feel like not everyone is getting the same level of education or the same level of care or mm, maybe not care just the same level of just individualized learning between professor student or teacher student because there's such, also so many, and also just the sheer volume of schools, like well, there's just...
2: a lot of volume, but some of it's proportional, and that's mm. why I said overcrowding is part of the story. But for example, when I went through when I went through public school, my first classes were probably 31. I, I was one of like 31 students in some classes and then when I went to the gifted and talented programs the numbers went down and they got capped to 25 Mm. and my high school we had 3,000 30 30 3500 students in the building now it's just like a three-floor building oh my goodness Um, (laughs) (laughs) and so I guess yeah in some ways what's fascinating to me with what you said is the idea of space and what that does, right? So the sprawling campuses that I associate with um, having left the city Mm. and and just being at these beautiful pastoral open campuses, um, those weren't my experience, and they're rare here. They do exist in some places, Mm. but where I teach, for example, and in Queens, It's a vertical campus. And by vertical, I mean we're talking about a campus that has buildings. They have floors. So you have a class and it might be on the seventh floor of the building. Mm -hmm. And you're going across the street to go between classes instead of going across the quad. So what does that do to a student? That's purely speculative, but um, my colleague and I go back and forth about this. What is the effect of beauty on one's education experience, right? Mm -hmm. So... What is it what does it do when a high school, which you know, actually, now that I think about it, I've been out of the city and seen the high schools, and I'm like, wow, those are beautiful. those they have fields, all that. but here, right you're going into a building, um, mine I remember was five floors, and we had to walk up two store, you know, like it's a 10 floor walk up to go to class. right. And this was fourth grade. Now I'm thinking back to, oh wow, we weren't allowed to use the elevator. They had jockeys <laughs> working. <laughs> Goodness. Uh, unless there were access, unless there were accessibility needs, right? Like, yeah, you're getting me thinking about a, a whole different thing—not just about beauty, but about how some of the bureaucracy I talked about affects the student. Mm-hmm. We weren't allowed. We were not allowed to ride in elevators in public school, and just the imagery. If you walk around here you'll see on the first floor and sometimes the second there are not just gates there are the barred windows Mm -hmm. and all of this and it does create a kind of like a cage-like atmosphere right and i wonder what effect a more sprawling open um, space would look like but at the same time i can't discount that there's a savvy that came up with having to commute on the train for Mm. my schooling at age 14 right there are you know eighth graders who are on the train when right. i'm going to work and yeah stuff like that it's hard to pinpoint but i'm just being speculative it- does have some effect I guess but I'm not sure what hmm.
0: yeah interesting I guess I didn't think about the difference between having all the opens openness mm-hmm. on a campus and how that would affect your psyche of just learning mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure it's like I'm sure it does like have some effect but also I feel like if you've grown up here like since birth, like you were born here went to school like everything it's your normal yeah. and so you don't see it any differently
2: oh my god uh, it was funny that you're making me think back um, Actually, let me ask you: Have you ever had class outside? Class outside. Like, did a professor or a teacher ever like, do a lesson outside? outside? Like, the, in we've the gone outside, yeah. Like gone sometimes outside. you'll see that. I took my class outside. We have a courtyard in our campus, and I took them outside, like just to do a regular lesson. And they were looking at me like, "Why are we here? <laughs> why? Why are we here?" Like, they really, they didn't know, they didn't understand
3: mm.
2: the whole purpose. It was, it was very different from when I did this when I was in college and it was like, Oh, this is nice. This is relaxing. Right. They were just looking at me. They were looking at me like I was crazy. Like why, what's the point of having class out here? Blah, blah, blah. Right. So, um, yeah, the, the ways that that kind of affects expectations, how mm-hmm. one approaches class. I mean, I wonder, and I think I do see it, but man, um, some of those, even in my own experience, the transition, mm-hmm. From leaving here and seeing how schools or even people operate with space that's something that i still reflect on yeah like there's an urban footprint that i'd say is left on a lot of our students and i'm not saying it's necessarily bad but it certainly is different in mm-hmm. how we conceptualize space people yeah uh pace even just walking Walking through the halls, right? Mm. The pace with which we, we, we move, all of those run things. Run me over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Y'all run... be zooming. Yeah, or cars, for example, right? You think oh, about the idea that
0: I would never drive in the city. <laughs> I would never you couldn't pay me mm-hmm. to get behind the wheel yeah. in this city.
2: Yeah, but the idea that you like you commute to class, right? So yeah, you right. might you might drive up on campus. Yeah. And the idea that someone would pull up in a car to go to, like only a small percentage of fee, of, of students are going to do that. Right. Because um, one, where are you going to park?
3: Mm.
2: Um, but two, everyone's taking the train, right? So right. it's it, that's a different experience as well. Like the idea of having a license even in high school, it's not really an urgent thing. I didn't get my license till 21. Oh, wow. <laughs> there was no point. Um, mm. But then in, in college, it was like, I'm left out now, right? But, right. But yeah, those all factor into a different experience I guess culturally Mm. um, and the classroom that's a whole different story from a system perspective but yeah the culture part uh, (laughs) yeah being in a city like this does I think create a different outlook for uh, for any young person.
0: Mm. Would you say for your own, I guess your life now, going through the public school system again, just with a different generation, has it opened your eyes to some newer things or has it made you question some things since now you are, you know, a parent and going through that system with your own children. And it's, I'm sure, vastly different Mm -hmm. than how it was when you were younger. Yeah,
2: there's so much to say on it. Uh, For one, and this might be another podcast episode Mm -hmm. unto itself. Thank you for opening the season (laughs) with this, by the way. (sighs) No, but for anyone, for anyone listening, no matter what the demographic, I mean, everyone should go back to school 10 years after they're done. Mm. For a few reasons. For one, the research of what scholars find out is good in the classroom, I think, doesn't really trickle down into the classroom until about 10 years after that research is done. So that's one thing. But what happened in the way that we did it, whoever we are, yeah. well, like, it's not done that way anymore. Right? right? So for me to go back into a classroom and see the differences It's my job. But for most people who have an opinion, Mm. like parents and every, you know, the general public has not been back in a classroom. It's my job and my privilege to be, to be in one. And so my colleagues and I, we talk about the evolution um, of the culture and some of it's not unique to you, to, to New York. It's just, um, little things, obviously COVID technology. I think that's the biggest, it's always the biggest difference maker. Mm. Um, the bigger question of what is the purpose for college is something that affects everyone. It's not, you, not unique to, to, to New York either. In 1970, there was a survey that was done on undergraduate experience. And I think about 70% said that they were going to college to better their minds and kind of edify themselves that way. And a minority of students were going for economic gain. That's how they responded. Mm-hmm. That survey was done again 50 years later, and that number has flipped. Most people, and I imagine you would attest to this, right? 100 um, Most people now, with college opening itself up and being a requirement and, and also diversifying, you know, most people are in college to get a job, to, right. to have the guarantee of economic mobility and all of that. So... It's important to know why people are going to answer Mm -hmm. that question, and I I see that. I do think about my responsibility in that, making sure that I'm not just so focused on my research area, like Mm -hmm. some professors. I wanna make sure I'm helping my student, who's a first-generation student, perhaps, to know the things that I didn't, to know the little things that make a difference, because a degree alone does not do it no matter where you're in school. It's about a lot of the skills that are acquired in the process. And that's a lot of my focus with how I approach the classroom. So yeah, things that have changed, we can go into that. I mean, there's an <laughs> infinite number of things that I could probably just sit here and talk about. But um, but what strikes me is the purpose, the whole question has to consider so much has changed culturally. Um, with college, and then, interestingly enough, community colleges play a, have played a bigger role in the public spotlight mm. in like the last ten years. Our our president, of course, um, is in a rare situation. I think no president has ever occupied the office. No, let me not mess this one up. But first lady, of course, Dr. Jill Biden teaches at a community college, mm. and so the fact that both. Are working and we have an educator has kind of raised that profile significantly too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the question is a very layered one. It's kind of hard for me to answer at once.
0: Understood. Sorry about that. Oh, all oh, good. <laughs> I guess also. So, our community colleges in New York viewed differently as they are compared to other places in the U.S. Because I, I personally am now at a community college myself. Mm-hmm. And I know when I tell people that I'm at a community college, like there's the little face that they make beforehand, depending mm. on who I'm talking to. Mm. Or just the like, oh, but you're so smart. You could be mm. going to the University of So and So or the College of Da 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 I'm like, Yeah, I'm smart. I am incredibly brilliant. Mm. Oh. <laughs> but that also means I don't want to be in debt for the rest of my life. Mm. So I know in the South, especially like a lot of kids do go to community college first, mm-hmm. but for them sometimes it is the end-all be-all before they or they'll go to like the moderate state school Mm -hmm. but in new york is it very different in the sense of community colleges are not necessarily regarded higher but still well maybe higher than other places in the u.s
3: Mm.
0: well
2: first if i could take the mic and ask you how do you feel about this thing
0: on community college Mm -hmm.
2: um and have you ever had it
0: (laughs) who i think I did have a stigma on community college, mm-hmm. especially when I was leaving high school because I graduated from high school in Mississippi. And in Mississippi, there's so many different branches of community college. You know, there's Heinz, there's Southwest, there's, who I think there's like Northeast there's like so many. Mm-hmm. And there were so many kids from my graduating class. And especially, you know, I was going during COVID. Um, there were so many in my graduating class that were going to community college. And in the back of my head, I was just like, all these people, like, I feel like, and there were even people that I knew were so, so brilliant. And Mm -hmm. in my mind, I was like, why would you be going to community college? Like, you could have gone anywhere. And then I proceeded to flunk my first year of college. And I was like, yeah, community college makes a little bit more sense now. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: (laughs) And so I had to take out the bias in myself and also give myself a little grace in the sense of just because you're going to community college doesn't mean I'm stupid. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I'm disadvantaged. It literally just means that I'm a little poor <laughs> um, mm-hmm. since I'm paying mm-hmm. it myself mm-hmm. and I'm taking the same classes. I'm doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so now I get more frustrated with the people who were me or are, you know, who have the bias now when I tell them, Oh, I'm going to community college. Mm.
2: Well, I think your, your perspective is really important, which is why I'm asking you um, <laughs> about it. You know, what do you feel about the quality of education you're receiving? Mm. You've you've had both, right? You, I have had. You both. were at Xavier. You were at. Hopefully, no one's going to look into your transcript and your record to see cool. who you're talking about. Not not about the performance, <laughs> but just about the professors. But you've had the experience of both. Yeah. How would you compare the? experience that you're having now versus mm-hmm. what you had before. before.
0: Mm-hmm. I will say it is a lot more relaxed. There's a lot more grace and forgiveness mm-hmm. with professors and programs in community college. Also went to a top 3 HBCU so that also <laughs> I didn't prepare myself ahead of time for what I was going in for, but I will say in terms of just professors and the the care that I'm given, in terms of me going to an HBCU, it was more about my blackness and how they cared in that sense of like,
1: oh, mm-hmm. you need to be
0: the strong black woman. Like they cared in that way. But in terms mm-hmm. of my genuine academics, my well-being, community college has helped me definitely far more mm-hmm. than going straight into a four-year university.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You brought up a lot of stuff that anyone listening has to take away as important.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. One, there is, bar none, an economic reality that comes with community college, and it's one that calls into question a lot about higher education in general. Mm -hmm. Um, It's undoubtedly expensive. People ask about the price of the price tag and that's a there are a lot of other great articles and things that have been written about this recently Mm. the conversation is definitely changing with regard to the value of a degree and professors also would be wise as well as other folks in higher ed to realize um public opinion on higher education is changing right um a lot of it's Partisan and political in the sense that, and this is not a bias, just statistically, more Republican leaning, yeah, more Republican leaning men and women distrust higher education and do not find value in it than their left leaning Democratic counterparts. Mm. Um, that is a significant difference. It's not one of those like gray areas. It is very clear cut that the perception of college is slanted politically. It's also a liberal space. Mm-hmm. But to your point, yeah. Community college is an economic question. Coming back to the question of New York and how our things operate, I'll paint this picture for you mm. to, to give you an idea of the value of community college. Of course, it's not free anymore, but right. it is for New York still the best driver for mobility. Four year and two-year colleges here at the City University of New York, the data shows we place more we have a we have a far better performance on elevating students from lower economic, socioeconomic backgrounds, getting them into the middle class than any of the ivies, or actually all of the ivies combined. The amount of movement that the City University of New York does to take folks from really, really striking numbers and getting them into a place where they can have families that are sustaining Dreams that are able to pay the bills. It parallels no other institution. And when I say lower socioeconomic status, at my college, just to give you an example, mm-hmm. there are out of the 18, i forgot how many—about ten thousand students who applied for federal aid. Fifty percent of them come from households where the median household income is twenty-five thousand dollars or lower.
0: A year. A year. That is how much I'm currently making.
2: Right. So. That is the household income of the students. And that is half about, roughly, half of our students are coming from that background, right? Right. And so that means the people who are educating that class have to understand and be trained in what it means to be coming from those backgrounds. Right. um, And to be equipped. From a demographic standpoint, we have in my school about, let's see, 40% of our students are Hispanic, we are a Hispanic serving institution. About 17% are black, 20% are Asian, and about 15% or so are white. Um, nationally, it's about flipped. 40% of community college students are white, followed by Hispanic and then black, Asian. But the numbers with regard to money make community college such a kind of under, un, overlooked, undervalued resource and it's something that i think to your original point yeah still gets stigmatized but people don't know the facts one fact actually puts you on the spot again oh boy for, yeah you didn't know you signed up for a pop quiz <laughs> what percent of people do you think go to community college percent mhm still out of number 30% pretty good yeah about 41% of people currently enrolled in college are community college students oh wow so you're really looking at almost half Right, and the fact that community college is demonized as Mm -hmm. something in the shadows of higher education—it's everyone's like it's everyone's secret. Like forty percent of people were going through something that we stigmatized. Then what are we really doing? It's a common experience, Mm. right? But if there's a stigma against a common experience, then that suggests that the problem is that the experience is common, Mm. and that education, therefore, people still believe should be for the elite. And that's what right. that mentality is suggesting. And that's not fair. It's not accurate. Mm-hmm. It's really just its really just an American family trying to make ends meet. And yeah, if you had lower tuition and were going to be able to get credentials that would lead you to a four-year degree, mm-hmm. then the only reason to not do it often is the stigma. Right. And I'll also add that a lot of professors who are teaching at these colleges are credentialed and are giving care and are giving... The things often more direct care. And you could probably speak to that.
0: Yeah, all of my professors are have their doctorate or in process of getting their doctorates mm-hmm. currently and are fully qualified. I mean, my my psych professor talks about people in class, and she was alive when some of them were still being. <laughs> um, and that's a whole separate issue um, <laughs> when some of the people we're talking about were around. Yeah, I would just think that. Genuinely, the stigmas of community college do hinder a lot of people from realizing that they could have a stepping stone to help them further along in life. And I'm happy that I was one of the people who got out of that boat. But yeah, it's really interesting, the difference in, it might also just be a north-south thing as well in terms of education.
2: How so? Good. I
0: mean, I graduated high school from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I currently go to community college in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And education was important. But in terms of Mississippi, especially with everything with them trying to crack down on like To Kill a Mockingbird and the <laughs> banned books and like literally random books that nobody would even mm-hmm. think about. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Like <laughs> education in the South is viewed so differently. Like it's almost a sidebar. Mm-hmm. In terms of sports or like clubs or because we were talking about football earlier, um, because I I was in marching band mm-hmm. and I was in, on like the bowling team. And with marching band, but because we we're so tied to the football team, like they would rather us go to practice, help the team, go to the games, go to all that stuff. But my education wasn't seen as high value Mm. but for me it was different because i was also in some ap classes i you know was on the sat act like i was on the accelerated as accelerated as it can get in mississippi i was in the accelerated um course but in the South, education unless you're going to a private school or the most well-funded school imaginable education genuinely does not seem like a focus but when Mm. i've gone to schools up north my education was much was valued much more
3: this is
2: a really tough one to split apart and i'll Mm. try not to be boring about it (laughs) um because generally the new england liberalism school of thought Mm. um held that the public should be educated and it should be accessible there's another school of thought that education and this was if you look at just history in general, mm. um, one of the legacies of course, this goes back centuries with the South, of course, is, is a more tier hierarchical, hierarchical structure of race and class. Um, and some of that goes back to even just the kind of ethnic migration of which Europeans settled where mm. and the ide- ideologies that came um, from that. But overall, Right. The idea that education was accessible to all. We don't need to go that deep into the fact, you know, that that was what slavery very much enforced. The Mm -hmm. idea of educating, um, educating captured Africans was literally illegal. And the legacy of that. Well, you have HBCUs, you have black people hungering for education Mm -hmm. after uh, emancipation and creating free school or free uh, creating normal schools. Um, and you have of course northern educators coming down and black folks who are also just whether it's within a church whether it's creating their own space or getting land grants and you have of course your A&Ms and all that you have that legacy of pursuing education so the reason it's hard is I want to at once acknowledge that you've had a from the ground up pursuit of education, particularly when I'm thinking about the history of African-Americans in this country. And I can't deny what you're saying at all, that football, for example, is king in Mm. places where your university's (laughs) bankroll is funded by, uh, um, actually funded by black bodies often (laughs) who are um, upholding the university, that gets in a whole different realm. But That's also, to your point, that is a Southern phenomenon. You're not finding as many places. Mm -hmm. I know in New York, you don't have the same football culture. Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) Definitely not. That that exists.
0: Football is king. It is life.
2: (laughs) Right. And so even with basketball, which when I was coming up, was king in New York. Mm -hmm. That's just 12 people, right? I mean, and it's still over the same numbers that I... Twelve people per team, mm-hmm. and that's the, over the same numbers that we talked about before. To say that education was held higher here, I don't know if I could. I'm not sure because I, I see ways that education's denigrated here. Mm-hmm. I see ways that I mean, you need not go further than like listening to hip hop and the stories that were told about education, where people, of course, pursued it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Biggie raps about it. I mean, there's so many people who, in their rhymes. Yeah, the pursuit of education has always been a thing, but the actual attainment and the execution of it has always been a complaint. So there's that long legacy of like failed promise, Um, especially in an urban area. (laughs) You can look at films like Have you ever seen Lean on Me?
3: Nope. Lean on (laughs) Me came
2: out in the late 1980s, and it's about not New York, but this is about a school district in New Jersey. Mm. And
0: oh, you had to make the separation clear.
2: Yeah, we're different. <laughs> but still, the similarity is, like, you know, education here, there are so many different shortcomings falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. All of those things. Um, I will add, college professors aren't getting paid more for it, despite tuition rising. Mm. It's really just administrative costs and other things. But it still is a problem that it's, it, it is a different problem here than there. To speak very generally but the the underachievement is 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 the shared problem mm-hmm. the reasons why are different i guess i would i would be more comfortable saying that yeah i think i was i think i can rest with that
0: one hmm. well i have one final question for you mm-hmm. uh and this one is a little mm, it doesn't necessarily go from new york this is more of your own thoughts mm-hmm. so Have you heard about some of the stuff with affirmative action and higher learning and how we're only let into these places because we are black? (laughs) As a man, a black man coming from New York, Queens, going to Duke, Mm -hmm. how do you think, or if at all, did affirmative action help you get there? (laughs) Or was it just your pure wit and brilliance? (laughs) Um, Or I guess also you could say, I guess your thoughts personally about the affirmative action conversation and how it's being taken away. I think
2: the word that's at the core of what you're saying is meritocracy, Mm. right? The idea that one just earns what they deserve at once. It's the foundation for a lot of what happens in the U.S. Um, People hold tight to the idea. You know, no one wants to be told you didn't earn that. Right. Um, And gosh, I'm infuriated by the Supreme Court and by the decision that has turned a blind eye to the, for example, to legacy admissions Mm. and doesn't really look at higher education for its purpose. It doesn't look at equity, doesn't look at the beneficiaries of affirmative action in terms of also realizing that it's not just black folks who were looked at in this right? but this idea of meritocracy and fairness that's at the root of the question insults me personally mm-hmm. um, because there are just misunderstandings that are based in this idea that basically black folks are stupid and we just need whatever whatever kind of help we can get mm-hmm. when what I love about what's happened in education in the last 10 years or so is that we have looked at what the the what makes a rich an intellectually rich student experientially last 10 or 15 years we've moved away from sat scores mm-hmm. um, i myself actually run uh, classes in what's called contract grading so i no longer look at raw test scores and say okay this 93 is a an A and this 88 is a B plus but my students basically approach class like a contract and if we ask ourselves what the purpose of education is we're not test scores we do need a holistic way of viewing the value of each student and so the idea that a system that was sort of designed by and for Um, a particular culture um, wouldn't reproduce itself generation after generation through testing and so forth Um, you know the idea that the supreme court made its decision and said basically that this is quote unquote unfair without looking at um, the history of this country and looking at other ways that uh, the meritocracy that we operate with is unfair. It says a lot. It insults me. I think your question was about also the role that affirmative action, quote unquote, played in my life. Mm. Um,
0: if it did at If all. it
2: did at all. I mean, the reality is what's unfair, and I, what I think about when I look at how I grew up is my success was me getting plucked out of one school mm. and going back to the neighborhood where the 25, 30 other kids in my class who may have also had that potential got left behind, mm. All right? So I got plucked out and that's a success for me, but right. at what expense? And these schools often train and teach students that they are special, that they are better than. Mm-hmm. And so that I'm glad I pushed back on because you have people who are taken from these taken from neighborhoods like mine made to feel better than or superior and then what's the incentive to care or give back and so it's the kind of indirect response to your question but there are so many broader issues with how we think of meritocracy how we think of success and even the purpose of education that brings up a lot of feelings that are not they're not centered on me but collectively yeah. We have to ask ourselves, what really is the purpose of education? What does it mean to be a quote unquote good student? And is is that a test score? Mm. Uh, and do we really believe that education is for everyone or should be? I mean, these are the questions that I think people are afraid to admit their biases on. And I think, yeah, we need a radical rethinking of how we operate in education while it's still quote unquote relevant in public opinion because we do need it i will stand firm and say we need um, a strong liberal education by liberal i mean accessible to all um, for whatever they might want from it and that means making sure we have pathways for vocational making sure that we destigmatize two-year colleges and making sure that there are research opportunities right but a fresh look at all that would be something that would make me feel less aggrieved from some of the experience I had growing up.
0: We, we really hit on every single <laughs> part of education we could have gotten on. Um, I do appreciate you taking the time out of your day and your very, very busy schedule um, to talk to me um, and shine some light on some education issues and also just, even the benefits, the pure benefits of just learning. And I'm thankful that you get to impart that wisdom on both myself and my co-host and also just my listeners in general. So thank you.
2: And thank you. One last thing, one last thing. I want to (laughs) shout out my teachers, my professors, too many to name. Um, but to anyone out there listening, send your favorite teacher, your favorite professor, an email or a letter. Um, we love what we do, and we often never get to hear from the people who really touch us as professors. We never get to hear from our students to know what happened. So brighten up a teacher's day and send them a note. Oh,
0: that was so sweet. That was so cute. <laughs> no? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I am back from the good old Big Apple <laughs> after talking to dr hendrickson about not even just the new york education system but also uh, pretty much also the u.s education system and how it differs in different regions um i mean i was there I'm, i didn't really get to talk to you too much personally about your thoughts on it so how did you feel after listening to everything
1: so for the listeners the first experience that i had with the interview was actually in editing the contents of it we had arranged the interview and we kind of knew the general direction that was going to go in but i had no idea if it you know went well i didn't know if my co-host had i don't know harassed the interviewee (laughs) had no idea what was going on So, listening through when I was editing it, it was the first time that I really got a chance to hear the points that were brought up. And then, of course, you know, editing it, you hear those points over and over again. Mm. (laughs) So, there was a lot to cover. You guys covered a lot of ground. Um, I thought it was interesting to hear the discussions of uh, sort of the environment that students are found in, Mm. in different areas. So, sort of contrasting the role of sort of more urban education in, like, larger cities where it's going to be more vertical, less greenery, versus more, uh, like, suburban or even rural education where, you know, there's a lot more involvement of outdoors and, I don't know, greenery and that sort of stuff. And I was thinking back to our time spent in school and how, at least for me, uh, because I know that our tracks for schooling were a little bit different, especially Mm. sort of leading up to uh, middle school and then sort of into high school. Yeah. But... I remember for us, especially in elementary school, you know, walking outside, being out in the world, it was such a big focus. Mm -hmm. There were plenty of field trips, you would go to all these different places, Uh, and I think I didn't recognize at the time how much of a privilege that was, Um, and being able to sort of see these unique experiences where, you know, I never really thought that someone who's, you know, in New York they don't have those experiences because there is no forest to walk through outside of like Central Park. <laughs> so right. I'm I'm sure that would get boring after a while because you can't just do, you know, a trip every single you know semester to go there. But I thought it was really interesting to hear about that. And then, uh, of course, and of course, Dr. Hendrickson's thoughts on the impact that that might have on the outlook that these students have on education and their sort of engagement with it. Uh, And I thought his little anecdote about the students that he had where he took them outside and they were just kind of like, why are we here? Was Mm -hmm. a bit interesting because for me, I remember back in school, whenever that would happen, it would be, you know, a whole thing. We're outside, we're out in the sun, we're having fresh air. It'd be really refreshing and all this. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: But I don't know. I thought it was just interesting to hear all that. Um, Your guys' discussion on the... Sort of perceptions of education from a northern and southern perspective was also really interesting. And I wanted to ask you with that do you mm-hmm. find that your perception of education when you came to Alaska was different from when you left? And did that sort of impact how you then uh, integrated back into southern education when you uh, left again? Oh, that's a good question.
0: Um, I would say so, you know, I left. Tennessee when I was eight and I moved to Boston right from that and so I went from smaller city to a major city and so I was like walking to school every day um or I was biking with my mom and so I had that experience and so I did like kind of had an outside experience because it was still elementary school and I was walking to school even though I was living in Boston but I was like on kind of the outskirts of the city like in suburb adjacent like we we're 10 minutes from a T stop. Like it was, we were still able to get to the city. But once I moved from Boston to Alaska, I realized I was spending so much more time outdoors. Like I thought I was spending lots of time outside just like with school, recess, walking the city. But like being in Alaska, there was such a focus on just being outside. Like not even doing anything, just being outside. And I do remember, let's see, I didn't, we didn't meet each other until the eighth grade. But even still, like, I remember we would all, like, go outside and we were in our little, like, subgroups, like Phoenix, Virgo, like, all those. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, we would, like, be a part of those and we would, like, go outside and have, like, field days and things like that, like, I didn't realize how important those were. At the time because I was there for five years so I just kind of got used to it and even just like how everyone had to dang near do a sport like it was almost a requirement and I do definitely think that being outside more helped my education compared to when I mean now being back in Memphis like we weren't the only reason I was outside pretty much at all was because I did marching band and even still like that's more than being outside in New York City and I do definitely think that being outside benefited my education so much more than being stuck in a building and looking out a window and then walking to the subway and then walking home. Like, I wouldn't appreciate the outdoors as much if it was literally just for me as a means to way to just get home than me being outside and just just to be genuinely um although New York does have a lot of parks and they have really nice parks and they're very well funded um it's just that I think like I think we even talked about it in the interview if you are born in New York and you are born to literally be inside of buildings pretty much for the rest of your life like you're not gonna think of the outside as being all that genuinely and having that conversation like I could I could see that Um, in the interview, because, you know, he talked about being, you know, born and raised in New York and how being outside just wasn't something that he really appreciated until later on. Um, so I guess, yeah, that's from a Southern perspective as a Southerner who went to the North and came back to the South. Like I truly have a different perspective on how your environment definitely impacts your learning and education and how much you pull from it.
1: Another point that you guys got into that I thought was really interesting was the role of these sort of advanced placement um, programs, which I know that specifically in sort of elementary and middle and even some high schools where you do have these programs, uh, they're not quite AP programs yet. They're more just accelerated programs. Or, for instance, in Fairbanks at the time that I was in elementary school, they were known as ELP, so they were extended learning
0: programs, which
1: oh I think is a, it's a bit of a confusing name, because I think that name sort of implies that the students who are in it are behind, almost.
0: Yeah, because that, that makes me think of the... What, what, what is it? It's like a... Not a 504 plan, but the other plan. You know what I'm talking about. Like, when students have a learning disability, such the E, and they would, like, take them yeah. out of class and stuff. Like, if I heard that, I'd be like, oh, they get to go to another classroom, because they're... Yeah, I'm sure... <laughs> I sure would have thought
1: that. Yeah, But I thought it was interesting because I, of course, I was also in one of these programs. I was in ELP in Fairbanks and I am still not entirely sure what was the differentiating factor on, maybe, I'm not sure what the specific factor was that influenced their decision for certain students to be pulled out of their normal classes and to be put in this program versus to be left. Um, I remember they gave us You know, the sort of test for those who I guess they were curious to see if they wanted in the class. Maybe there were, you know, prior test scores or something. I know that following um, sort of the pushes by the Bush administration and then early into the Obama administration, there was a lot of focus on standardized testing, especially Mm -hmm. Um, lots of tests for everything from math to spelling to reading I'm not sure what the state of that sort of stuff is now, because it has been, (laughs) you know, probably more than a decade now since I've set foot into an elementary school. (laughs) Right. But probably longer than that even. Uh, It's it's been a while. But I thought it was interesting to hear about that sort of, almost the universality of it, where then uh, hearing from Dr. Hendrickson and his perspective on it as someone who went through that program And then is now at the point in his life where he can look back on it and sort of reflect more critically on it and see, you know, he was able to experience, you know, that which was, as he was describing it, something that was uh, almost necessary for him to be placed onto the path that he went. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as he was noting, it came at the expense of, you know, the rest of the students who were ultimately left behind in that classroom, which I thought was interesting to here uh of course but to also think about sort of the lack of criticality that i've had looking back on those memories because i think that even though it was you know this unique opportunity there was a lot of you know stem because of course that was another big thing at the time because of course you know you don't need the arts you only need a bunch of engineers and mathematicians
0: i remember stem so big in alaska oh my goodness i did engineering clubs I did robotics. Like, it was literally shoved down our throats. Oh my I remember goodness. they
1: tried for a little bit to adapt it into STEAM, Steam? where they included the arts, but they, they really gave up on that.
0: Yeah. Oh my god.
1: But anyways, I thought it was interesting to hear his perspective on that, and then to again think from my perspective on it, but to also sort of compare it to, I'm sure you've seen it, but every so often you have, it's usually millennials, <laughs> not to bash on millennials, but... You know, it's millennials or older Gen Z. And they'll be on TikTok and you have these sort of burnout gifted kids, right? Yep. And they always talk about how, you know, they were in these gifted programs and they reached, you know, middle, high school, and then they just burned out and that was it. And, of course, you have a bunch of people who are like, you know, (laughs) like, you know, they're not very, I would say, empathetic towards their plight. But I do think it touches on something that is worth being brought up, and that is, I don't think there's a lot of standardization of these programs. Mm. I know that the programs were very different between even middle and elementary schools in Fairbanks, uh, and I know that between cities they're different. I'm assuming between states they're even more different. But within that, I think that there are a lot of skills that students who are in the normal program, I think, are able to gain, that those who are in these accelerated programs ultimately are not given as easily or as readily. And I think personally, that was one thing that struck me, was being in that program, it came at a time when math was becoming far more advanced. Mm -hmm. This was uh, at a point where it was very critical to get certain things about math. And unfortunately, the ELP program, uh, yeah, the the program program, (laughs) but the ELP initiative, it overlapped with the time that we had math in our classes. So yeah, I think it, personally, it had a very negative effect on me as still to this day, I find myself overly reliant upon calculators and mm-hmm. other sort of forms of automation for math because those critical skills were, I don't want to say deprived for me because that's <laughs> that's awfully, <laughs> you know, accusatory. Right. I, th- I think it's interesting to see how a program that focused a lot on STEM and all these different things it ultimately sort of undermined my ability to ever engage within uh, engineering and mathematics specifically which I don't know I thought it was just interesting to then think about that and then think of it now from the position where I'm at in my education now which of course I'm in university I am attending a university in Germany um, and one thing of note that I sort of drew a mental comparison to when thinking about these sort of accelerated programs was that in Germany, to the best of my knowledge, (laughs) this is coming from someone who doesn't have a lot of uh, personal experience with the German education system before university, but from my understanding of it, a lot of students find themselves placed into various types of schools that then will put them onto certain tracks towards either uh, more uh, direct applications so things like trade schools right, or sort of various forms of education that then will develop over time so there's sort of this fork in the road where depending on the school that you end up going to, it will sort of guide you towards what you're meant to do for the rest of your life and I, th- I think it's certainly a cultural difference but at the same time I think for us, it was very important for us to know, even by middle school and early high school, mm-hmm. what we wanted to do and what we were going to do.
3: Oh, for sure. There was a lot of
1: pressure placed onto, you know, the university that you're wanting to apply to, mm-hmm. uh, your test scores, lots of SAT prep, all, this, or all of these different things. Uh, you always had to have really good extracurriculars uh, and it would all sort of dictate what was going to happen in your life. So I think that we have culturally something that's very similar, but I think it's interesting to see how in Germany, again, (laughs) to the best of my understanding of the system, it has been sort of codified where it's beyond just something that you stress about as, you know, a young teenager. And instead it's uh, sort of your direct path through school, where if you're going to become an electrician, you're going to go to a specific high school that's going to integrate certain trade classes, and then it'll give you time to graduate early to then go directly into a trades program yeah. for sort of an understudy position, which it certainly is not called an understudy position. That's <laughs> something from theater. Um, an apprenticeship, right? That's the word that we're looking for.
0: Sounds a lot better.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it's really interesting to hear how, you know, this thing that I thought was something that was very direct for sort of post-90s kids, where I thought that's when sort of accelerated programs became a big thing. It was some sort of trend in the 2000s. But I hadn't realized that these programs went back so long to the point where even, you know, Dr. Hendrickson had his experience with it. So I just thought it was sort of interesting. But for you, you also mentioned that you were in one of these accelerated programs, or I think the way you described it was uh, as accelerated as it can get in Tennessee.
0: Oh, yeah. I, um, so I did even in Alaska. I was in, was I in, I don't think I wasn't in any advanced classes in Alaska. I was just in regular classes. But then once I moved to Tennessee at Mississippi, um, then they decided to start putting me in these accelerated classes or like gifted classes. Although I didn't start taking AP classes until I was a senior. But I did gifted classes up until that point and bless the Southern hearts that are here, but they do not pride education all that high. <laughs> so what I meant as accelerated as it gets, I genuinely meant like the classes weren't hard. It was just, I I was in a different state that took education very differently. Uh, they were busy fighting about whether, you know, to kill a mockingbird could still be taught in classes, not, you know how to conjugate verbs and things um (laughs) and i don't think it really i didn't feel hindered or even very pressured um i guess until kind of covid hit with the classes with the accelerated classes because pretty much mississippi was one of the states that i think covid hit march of my junior year of high school and then by August September of that year my school was already opened back up mm-hmm. and my mother was dealing with some medical issues so I wasn't able to safely go back to school without bringing something back to her and I definitely feel like with me being in AP classes during that that was definitely harder for me um, because mm-hmm. I was stuck at home I couldn't Like, I was getting recordings of what was happening in class so I could, like, hear the discussions. But I also didn't really feel like I was really gaining anything, especially when I had to take the test. Because really, to be honest, I took the AP class just so I could have the GPA boost. (laughs) But my school (laughs) wouldn't let me, like, just take the class with the boot. Like, if I just took the class. I wouldn't have been able to get the GPA boost. And so I had to take the test to get the boost. And when I took the test, like, I feel like I was severely disadvantaged because I wasn't there and because I wasn't mm-hmm. able to learn. And also, I genuinely don't think that I was prepared at all by the teacher that I was given.
1: And this this was for the 2020 AP testing period.
0: Uh, This was 2021? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 2021. I think, 2020 to 2021, yeah.
1: Because I'm trying, I'm trying to think back to that, and this was definitely during COVID. This was after the sort of transition into online, which it was kind of surprising that Alaska took it as seriously as it did, or at least our school district did. Mm-hmm. Alaska is very much an enigma when it comes to these <laughs> sorts of things, where you can't really tell what they'll do.
0: Gotta love the ASD school district. <laughs> Yeah, mixed feelings
1: with it but um i think that the teachers of course the teachers care mm-hmm. of course they care and they put in a lot of effort despite the you know the oh what was everyone calling it the unique circumstances or the uh unprecedented times yep. that we found ourselves in but um, I thought it was interesting that one of the worst experiences for me during that time was the AP exams. Yes, and it wasn't because of just the exams, right? Uh, but AP itself—I don't think they had been prepared for those exams Mm-mm. whatsoever. I remember so that year it was. This was either two thousand. This must have been twenty twenty one, or it might have been twenty twenty. Well, we graduated. I, I'm assuming twenty
0: twenty one. So this would sort of so have had to been. been uh,
1: it was somewhere well, between twenty twenty. I'm imagining twenty twenty because I'm yeah. this was still lockdown. So, at the time, I had I think three right. I had three different AP exams. I had AP US History, AP Psychology, and AP Language and whatever the full <laughs> <laughs> the full class name is. But you know, AP Lang, AP Psych, and APUSH. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that the exams themselves were a mess. Yeah. The contents were the contents themselves fine, you know, it's what it's what you train for, especially for AP Lang for the contents. But the actual infrastructure behind the website was barely functioning. The moment we had exams, things weren't being submitted. Mm-hmm. I personally knew multiple people who were trying to submit. I remember seeing videos on TikTok of people hitting the submit button as the timer ran out, and it, <laughs> it wasn't accepting their results. All these different things. but, I do still think it's funny, despite all this, uh, and (laughs) for the first AP psychology exam, I woke up in the aftermath of it, because I managed to sleep (gasps) through my alarms, and I woke up to (laughs) every single person I knew was texting me, saying that I missed the exam, I was freaking out, it was a whole thing. But even despite that, for the three exams, I thought it was interesting that, despite feeling probably... One of the worst moods that I had in the entirety of high school, because of the circumstances that we were in, mm-hmm. still managed to get fives on all three of them. So, like, cool. <laughs> yeah, crazy. But I, I still think that the way that they should have handled it should have been different. I don't think that the utilization of online infrastructure in that way, where it clearly wasn't prepared, I don't think that was efficient. I don't think yeah. it was helpful for a lot of students. I think it provided a lot of stress on students and especially students who may not have had immediate access to stable internet connections or these sorts of things that are necessary for uh multiple hours of examinations but i don't know i i think that that entire i I guess it brings up the subject of sort of school and covid and the relation between the two or education as a whole and covid Mm -hmm. and i get that we're still in sort of the historian's rule where you have to wait years to talk about a subject but we're here and we're talking about it now
0: so oh yeah <laughs> we're
1: breaking the rule a little bit but i think it's interesting to hear what is happening thus far with sort of the generation of students who were young enough that covid kind of stunted their development when it came to schooling and interaction and these oh sorts of things that
0: goodness, are yes. really
1: starting to come an issue and i'm i'm sure you've seen it as well there's plenty of teachers who are starting to speak about this especially for elementary schoolers yes, on, like, where TikTok? the kids themselves on TikTok I've seen a couple news reports now coming out but it's as though the kids don't really know how to interact anymore just based on what's happened now with covid and I'm sure mm. some of it might be overblown and a little bit of it might just be you know you know kids these days but I I don't know I think it's an interesting issue because you A lot of these kids, they missed, you know, three or four years of critical development. Especially if they Mm -hmm. missed, you know, the first couple of years of elementary school. Where, as much as we talk about it as school, elementary school especially, it's mostly just babysitting. But in that babysitting, you have the kids learn how to interact with one another. You have them be able to realize that other people can be spoken to in certain ways and not in other ways. Or that you can't bite other people. (laughs) (laughs) Which some of these lessons they they require in person interaction to learn and for a lot of these kids they didn't have that and i'm seeing now there's a lot of behavioral issues that are happening for kids that are later in elementary school or early middle school now which i mean of course you know high school's or not high school but schools as a whole have always had education as like a focus but there's always behavioral issues there's always students who you know they're too tired they're too like hopped up on whatever craze has gone around for us in high school it was you know what nicotine oh yeah <laughs> and the rise of vaping and oh my god the
0: goodness. rise of
1: vaping but now i'm hearing that you know back at our former middle school there were kids who got in trouble because they brought in you know vodka and everything i'm like you guys what? Are, <laughs> you're thir- you're 13 yeah
0: when we were 13 years old when we were there? Ugh. I'm sorry, that deleted. That, that no. Took me no,
1: this so this happened 2021. So this was still when we were in high school. Oh, but like and four, gee. Yeah, 4 years after we were in middle school, the kids are already acting all weird. Like it's ridiculous, but I think it's interesting to see how education as a whole is trying to adapt to COVID and paired with the exhaustion placed on teachers and their lack of resources their lack of time and their lack of funding as well as their lack of reward for what they're doing because they're raising up quite literally the next generation and they're getting pennies on the dollar
0: so what it all stems towards is we should be paying teachers more honestly we should be paying paying teachers more (laughs) (laughs) all of these problems (laughs) probably could be solved if you just paid them a little bit more (laughs)
1: But I think it's interesting that you're having, specifically within uh, Fairbanks, right? The Fairbanks-North mm. Star Borough School District, which is my former elementary school and also my uh, seventh grade. Things are very bad in Fairbanks right now. Yeah. And this is all alleged. We're not trying to get sued or, you know, attack for defamation. <laughs> but apparently, right, I heard this from my niece. Oh. <laughs> my niece, who is currently in elementary school in Fairbanks. And of course, then I was very curious about it, so I was asking her mom, my sister. And apparently, Fairbanks has experienced major budget cuts, which of course the economy in Alaska as a whole right now has been slowing down in recent years, especially within Fairbanks. But within the school districts themselves, there have been massive budget cuts, teachers were laid off, and class sizes have now more than doubled. Which is ridiculous. You're having on average classes in the size of 35 to 40 students for elementary schools. Which is... I mean, I'm not sure if you've been in a room with 40 elementary schoolers. But that is not a classroom you can teach nor control. (laughs) But it's wild to me that all of this is going on. And in fact, they've shut down a number of schools. Including my elementary school in Fairbanks. Which is wild to me. Because it was a brand new school. So now it's been shuttered. Meanwhile... As they're doing all this, they're doing these massive rest- uh, massive cutbacks for the, Fairbanks North- uh, for the Fairbanks North Star Borough School District. Apparently, the administration has been maintaining or even in certain cases receiving more than they originally were. Which wow. I think is interesting that you're seeing the administrative capacity of these school districts that are sort of taking the money and running with it without returning it to the kids in their community who are ultimately who they're there for, or at least supposed to be there for. Right. So I was wondering, (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering if you had had any similar experience in lower 48 where you were talking about how specifically in the South Mm -hmm. education is, you know, put on the back burner in comparison to things like sports and those sorts of activities. Were you ever seeing, you know, similar activity where the actual education of students was not necessarily being jeopardized, but just sort of being disregarded for, you know, administrative fees or to, I mean.
0: I would say not in high school. So in high school, most of the money was going towards, like, the football team. So that would be the only, like, it wasn't necessarily going to the arts. Like, we had to campaign, like, and do popcorn and, like, all that other stuff. But, like, the football team just always had the money. It was always in the budget for them. But I will say once I got to college, oh, yes, money was disappearing. So I guess, well, I guess I should explain. So for listeners, and I guess also Dawson, who may not know this, um, I went to an HBCU, as I think I've mentioned several times. Uh, and HBCUs uh, definitely in the more recent months slash years have come under lots of scrutiny under the fact that sometimes the numbers are definitely not adding up. But then, of course, everyone, once they started thinking about it, were saying, okay, well, you have all these people giving money just willingly to the university. Clearly, it's not going towards housing. Y'all are raising the prices for schooling. So where is our money and this other money going towards? Because it doesn't make any sense. And I will definitely say, like, personally at the school I went to, it is ridiculously expensive but I never really had the feeling that they were necessarily garnishing my money, but I will definitely say like compared to other schools, it is a problem at mostly HBCUs with money just not adding up and being in places where it needs to be. And that would be the only like real connection I would have with that kind of situation because definitely in high school, it was mostly going towards sports and it was going towards things that were already well-funded. And it definitely wasn't going towards the actual student body. But I would even go as far as to say that using... I personally think everyone should at least have some form of higher mm. education if they can afford it. However, I would highly suggest for any person that does not think that they want to go for a higher education, should 100% go for a trade for something else because these schools will literally tell you that they need every dollar and penny that you ever have owed in your lifetime still ask for more and then in 30 years tell you they need a donation for the next generation which then makes you wonder where did your 250 thousand dollars that you've already spent has gone (laughs) towards um but i genuinely like i can't say that I, um, I really just can't say a whole lot because if I say too more, too much more, I might have a hit out on me.
1: <laughs> but
0: I genuinely cannot understand why these schools and these places are so comfortable with literally stealing from people right in front of their faces. And and I guess that's that's all I have to really say about that. <laughs> I kind of went off on that one, but like genuinely, I cannot. Um, because sometimes like people are literally doing this education, doing all of these things because they want to get that higher education, because they want to make something of themselves, and then schools are literally stealing their money and begging for more and having them live in these horrible conditions that people don't even need to be living in. I just think, I just genuinely think it's unfair. I feel like we've beaten, Education to a pulp at this point. Uh, I guess I would just say like food for thought to the people that are listening. Just like genuinely sit down and think about how your education has either helped you or in some people might have even hindered you. And I would genuinely say like think about who you are or even maybe who you could have been with or without education. Because that truly, sometimes people don't realize how good they have it until you think about what you could have had and how it could have ended up so much differently. And I think that's, that's definitely some food for thought.
1: I think as well, not only looking at this from the perspective of colleges, which that was sort of the larger focus of this episode, but when it comes to sort of primary and secondary education, so when we're talking about uh, children who are in elementary school, middle school, high school, we brought up a lot of sort of concerning (laughs) things that are happening uh, when it comes to, you know, budgeting, programs being cut, uh, I don't want to say amenities, but uh, various elements of education being sort of placed on the back burner. I think it's important to know that, or not to know, but to note that that's not something that just happens in a vacuum, but this is Something that's a consequence of policy, and given that we're talking from the perspective of people in the United States, policy can be impacted. Senators have phone numbers. (laughs) But additionally, things like school board elections may be occurring in your community, and out of every single form of election, I am fairly positive that school board elections probably have the largest number of sort of apathetic voters who don't really involve themselves in it, but ultimately these are the futures of your children, and they're going to either be given the advantage from their education or stunted by their education, depending on, you know, if books are banned in your school district, or if there's no funding being put into the mathematics or arts department. Which, I know it's a bit of a contentious point, but when it comes to the arts and looking more at STEAM rather than STEM, which... Of course, that has its own flaws. But looking at the art specifically, children first learn how to view the world through art. That's not really anything people can argue with. It's why children love to draw. It's why you get stick figures and, you know, the sun with a little smile on its face and all these different things. It's their way of viewing the world. And the tools given to them in school help to expand this, especially within primary school. But when there's this absence of these sorts of tools and this way of viewing the world and really approaching their understanding of things where you know they feel comfortable in asking questions of the world or they feel comfortable in you know having questions about the world in the absence of this there's nothing that really replaces it and you know it's important to know that children need art they need high quality education They don't need books banned. (laughs) They don't need, you know, school programs to be this very depersonalized and unapproachable thing. It's supposed to be something that's, yes, important, but it's also supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a social activity.
0: I'd like to give a sincere thank you to our wonderful interviewee, Dr. Hendrickson, for taking time out of his very, very busy schedule to speak with me personally and also, you know, be able to share some insight on both himself, New York City, and just education as a whole.
1: I would like to thank my co host, my wonderful co host from across the Atlantic, who was willing to go to New York for an interview for the premiere of a show that no one listens to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Any time. And ultimately, I think that is a wrap. The Beringia podcast was created by Mac Ellis and Dawson Zuls, featuring music from Functional Palace. For any comments, queries, concerns, and submissions, we can be reached at berengiapodcasts at gmail.com. B-E-R-I-N-G-I-A podcast at gmail.com.